Hey guys, it's Walter, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 90. I'm joined today by Azil. Hey guys. Well, we are here together, just me and Azil, to do a very special episode. Someone asked in the recent podcast thread, why don't we do a quote-unquote Berserk Mythbusters episode? Which was funny because in the background for quite a long time now, I've been keeping track of common berserk misconceptions. You know, it was a pretty simple bulleted list where I would just write down something if I saw a question asked over and over, whether it was on Scalding.net's forums or it was on Reddit. I would just make a little note of it with the intent of eventually making a frequently asked questions thing. And when that question came into the thread, I'm like, you know, why don't we just do a podcast of it? The guy has a good idea. So... I put them in doc and me and Azil kind of tackled them over the course of a couple of weeks and answering them and going back and forth how we would answer them. Some of them are big, long questions. So this podcast, the intent here is to go through that document as much as it makes sense to and just kind of get it all out there in audio form. I will be posting a thread eventually that will have all of our answers to those questions that'll be easily searchable. And I think it'll be great for the forum to have something like that that everyone can point to when there is a very commonly asked questions. I'm also so proud to introduce our special guest for this episode, who's going to read us all the questions. Uh, Please welcome Void from the 1997 anime dub. It's a pleasure to be here, Walter. Thanks for having me on the show. Wow, it's really Void. That's just so cool. I understand you're, like, the number one fan of me, is that right? Well, I don't think there's been any voting contests or anything, but uh, I do have a few questions, if that's okay with you. I don't see why not. I was wondering if you had a favorite avatar of mine. Well, uh, if I had to be choosy, I probably would go with the one where the Eclipse is bleeding into my body. That is a really good one. It's very nice. Thank you. Uh, We should probably just keep rolling. So uh, thanks again for doing the questions. And if you don't mind, let's just slide on into that segment. Showtime. Question one. What's the difference between fate and causality? In Berserk, there's no force, mystical force, called fate. In Greek mythology, there's a thing called fate, where there's a big tapestry where every event that's going to happen is written on it. And no matter what you do, even if you see the tapestry and you try to change events, it's still going to lead to the same events. In Berserk, that's not the case. In Japanese, Mura uses a word called inga, uh, which means causality. And causality is pretty simple. It's a law of cause and effect. It's a simple principle, but it's being manipulated by the EDF evil, which is a big bad guy in Berserk, Master of the God Hand and the Apostles. And that's what manipulates the world. So people still have free will. They can still, you know, try to change things. But there's this force that steers event in a specific direction to achieve uh, the goals of the bad guys. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that Mira makes a a distinguishment between those two terms. Because he's basically allowing for intervention in these grand plans. And also it means it also establishes that there's no absolute power over these events. He's not setting up an enemy who is, while very powerful, is not absolutely powerful, not omnipotent or omniscient. There are limitations to that, so which makes it a little bit more interesting in terms of the storytelling as well. Yeah, it's... Um I like that it's a very Asian concept as opposed to something more Western like the idea of fate. 
And like you said, I also like that it's very tough to go against it, as it's explained in uh, The War of Berserk, but it's not impossible. And that makes things all the more interesting. And I think uh, that gets us to, uh, that leads us to our second question, which is, is Guts outside of causality or is the Skull Knight outside of causality? Right. So whenever this question gets asked, I always just very simply, there's, there's a simple way to answer this. And that no. is in volume 18, <laughs> there is <laughs> when volume 18, when Skull Knight is approaching Guts just outside Albion, he says that both he and Guts still reside within causality. So like it's kind of case closed right there from Skull Knight's own mouth. Yep. They still subsist within causality. Now that's the simple answer that the complicated answer is that he, as he explains, you know, there are ways to slightly change what is planned to happen by the God Hand in the case of them both being slightly outside the physical world in the interstice. They're able to take small actions at particular times, which the story calls temporal junction points, that would subvert what causality is planning at that moment. However, kind of a long shot chance. It's not a guaranteed thing. And we've seen two very clear instances of this in volume 21 and in volume 34 and one worked one one didn't work yep <laughs> you could say well i guess also the eclipse but even then you know when the, the skull knight saves guts and cascine even the members of the golden are like oh god we couldn't foresee that and then you see void reacting by not reacting and you're like did that really not foresee it or you know maybe it was planned anywhere by higher ups than them so it's kind of you know it's kind of interesting the fact it's a very slim chance and one thing I like is that you take the corporate world, you take the people who live there in the normal world, they're completely, like, they can't escape it. Guts can, people in the interstice can, people who are magic users can, but it's a very small step. And like you said, it's a um, very slim chance. And the Skull Knight, as we saw in volume 34, despite what he tried, he still managed to, you know, get on. So the idea that either of them is completely outside that reach, uh, it's just, you know, it's just not possible. There's a couple other specific reasons why, you know, evidences you could say for them not being outside of causality. And that one is the fact that Guts uh, is, is branded, right? So he's tied to the vortex of souls. Yep. He, his actions are known to the God Hand, we know, because of the way Slan references him, her feeling him whenever Guts is in the cliff off. She references the countless nights she's felt him uh, in the cave and uh, in the tower in Albion. So it's, it's kind of, it's telegraphed pretty clearly that the God hand know what Guts has been up to. And also it's inconsequential what he's been up to is the way she's phrasing it basically. Yeah. Yeah. He's like a beacon in the darkness for them. Even specters who are like insignificant can fill him. So you'd get, you know, you'd think the higher ups can fill him as well and much better. And you know, clearly that's the case. And also the fact he's carrying a Beherit around and Beherits, as Flora explains it in volume 24, they're directly tied to the idea of evil, who's a big bad guy. So, you know, Gus, he's, he's basically like he's got a tracking device in his bag, you know, he's not going to use the Beherit, obviously, but, you know, they know it's there because, you know, they know wherever they are, because when they need to be in the hand of their users, they will be there. And, you know, when it needs to needs to leave Guts' hand, it will. But in the meantime, you know, they know it's there. So they know Guts is there. They know what he's doing. It's, you know, pretty inescapable. Question two. Guts needs a serious power-up if he wants to defeat Griffith. So why not use the Behirit and become an apostle? <laughs> so, yeah, it's just... That's a, a common misconception. But, you know, as we saw... Like, if you take the basic 
of, you know, Beherits and Apostles. Apostles are subservient to the God Hand. Like the God Hand gives out the power to the Apostles. So the first thing is, you really think you're going to be able to game the system and you're like, oh yeah, I want power. Are you going to give it to me? Then I kill you? I mean, it's just, that's not how it works. It's not very uh, realistic. And then the second thing is, as we saw from Ganishka's example, uh, Apostles are completely subservient to the God Hand. Ganishka, he tried to rise up against Griffiths but he couldn't. Griffiths raised his hand, Ganishka fell to his knees. You know, there's a clear order of power between the two, you know, and you know, God Hand are the master of the apostles. So if Guts became an apostle, that would be it right there. He'd become a servant to the guys he wants to kill. So it makes no sense at all. Also, thematically, it goes against, you know, what I would consider one of the core concepts of Berserk, which is Guts as a human attempting to battle and overpower you yeah. know, enemies that are more powerful than him. Uh, so G- Guts joining their ranks would just be completely antithetical to, you know, one of the core things of Berserk. It, just, it wouldn't make any sense for them to go back on that thesis, really. Yeah, clearly it'd be a travesty. I mean, the, it's really against the core concept of the series, so might as well. I mean, Mira would be selling out. And, you know, furthermore, Guts is already an incredibly powerful warrior at this point. Uh, you know, with the Berserk armor, He's able to kill like standard apostles in just he mi- you know makes mind smit out of them. Uh, he managed to crack Grunbell's Corundum armor even though he was grievously wounded. Uh, you know, I mean, at this point, it's not just getting a slightly more power and evil power to boot is not going to turn the tide. That's not how the story is going to play out. And people who expect him to just get, I don't know, slightly more muscle, well, that's not gonna do the trick. Yeah, and, you know, regardless of all the other things we've said about why an apostle facing against a god hand would be uh, impossible to do, yeah, the the I wouldn't call it minuscule, but the slight upgrade in strength, I'm not sure how that's going to tip the scales. Uh, the other fundamental problem with guts becoming an apostle is like, you know, how would he do that exactly? You know, for a sacrifice to be accepted, it has to be like giving up a part of yourself. Well, the one that obviously comes to mind is Casca, who guts devoted himself to for the past number of years. Uh, well, that's not going to happen. Casca's already been sacrificed. So, who exactly would guts give up for it to be a uh, you know an acceptable sacrifice in order to become an apostle? Like, it doesn't it doesn't add up. Yeah, um, it just doesn't work. To go to the the core of this misconception is like I think this keeps coming up because people keep pointing back to the fact that guts is carrying a behirit. That's really what trips up a lot of people. Is like, oh, guts is carrying it. So, A, it must be his, and B, it must be used like we've always seen Behirits used in the series. Well, my, my response to that has always been, we don't know that it's Guts. It could be just, he could just be ferrying it to its next owner, right? Yeah. The other thing is, um, fuck, what was the other thing? <laughs> oh, that, oh, right, that Behirits functions can only be to, sacri- to, to initiate sacrificial ceremonies, which we've already seen is not the case. There are other ways to use Behirits in the series, such as the way Skull Knight uses it uh, as a weapon technique. Question three. Did Griffith even have a choice at the Eclipse? It doesn't seem to me like there is even free will in Berserk. Yeah, well, not not really. I mean, there is free will in, in Berserk, but it is constrained by causality. So the way to see it is that uh, Griffith didn't have much of a choice. His entire life was shaped to achieve a specific result, but the choices he made along the way were his. Causality is not an all-encompassing force. You know, twice over, actually three times over, if you consider the full scope of the series, it's 
uh, it's said that humans always make the choice. Humans still make this choice. Even though there is a very influential force at work in causality, it's not an all-powerful one. Humans must decide how they act. Yep. Um, this, is to- this is reinforced by those that would know, like Flora, saying that humans always make these choices. And even thematically by someone like Luca, who establishes in volume or says in volume 21 that it's humans who make these decisions, even if there are uh, larger forces at work. It's even a theme in the Berserk Dreamcast game. If you want to dig really deep in Berserk's, <laughs> you know, history, there's a scene between Dunteth, who's the rebellion leader, and Rita, who's the performer in this in the show or the show, the the, the game, about how an- ancestry their their actions are bound by their ancestors, and Rita rejects that notion, and Dunteth calls her naive for that. So it's already a, it's addressing one of the core things in Berserk about your actions are defined by events that happened, you know, decades and centuries before. And the other perspective is you can, you don't have to, to, to choose to live like that and read his life. Yeah. And I think like the, maybe the biggest example of that is, uh, when the Kant, uh, didn't sacrifice, uh, his daughter, Theresia, you know, he had, you know, all the opportunity to, the situation was perfect. He had actually summoned the gun hand using the parrot. So it's something that it's meant to happen. But he didn't. He refused. So I think that choice, you know, to not do it and to instead go to the vortex shows that Griffiths, even though his entire life had prepared him for the sacrifice, if he had had a strong enough will, uh, he would not have sacrificed. He could have refused to sacrifice guts and his troops and everything. And another thing I think shows how tight these two situations can be is that uh, Ubik and Conrad actually went uh, through the trouble of uh, giving him a kind of uh, fever dream where he, you know, they reminded him of his ambition and everything. And they basically tried to convince him even at the 11th hour. So I think all of that shows that, you know, it's not, nothing is predecided. It's very heavily weighed in one direction. But if you got the will, you can, you know, refuse, you can make the, you know, the other choice. Right. We've also seen uh, directly how causality manipulates people. And when Mule uh, gave a kind of an impromptu dedication to Griffith, he comments on feeling these emotions surging in him. Um, but he he still makes that decision based on the emotions that he felt uh, to dedicate his life to Griffith. And he comments how it was very uncharacteristic of him to do that. So it's just a very specific granular example of causality kind of like, you know, using the leverage that they have on humanity to take that action. Yeah, I think it's a good example of how people who are not, who are in the corporate world, who are not in the astral world, not in the interstice, uh, sometimes just cannot go against what was planned for them. You know, they just follow along the story even when they are surprised by it. Question four. Griffith's sacrifice must be incomplete. Because Guts and Casca remain alive. Wait, seriously? <laughs> so, yeah. So this one is... Uh, no, it's not the case. Uh, simply, the sacrifice is a choice made by Griffiths. When or Griffiths or any apostle or anybody, when they you know, offer up their significant person as a sacrifice, that's when it's decided. And when the brand is applied on the people, that's when the sacrifice is completed. So whether they live or not is actually irrelevant. Uh, it's just, you know, like most of the time, of course, uh, the people die immediately after, but it doesn't it doesn't matter. And if it did, uh, you know, I mean, the Godan has had plenty of opportunities to kill Gus and Casca. I mean, Gus especially, they've actually faced him several times and they've made it clear they don't care. 
So, you know, it doesn't matter. And Femto was born anyway. And besides, it's not like, you know, you don't have the more people you kill, the more power you get. It doesn't work like that. It's more an exchange of, you know, goodwill. You sacrifice somebody, we give you the power. Furthermore, if such a weakness existed, it would have been addressed by now and has never even been broached at all. Uh, for it to come, if, if they were to develop now, it would be like a deus ex machina kind of thing. It wouldn't make a lot of sense. Well, why wasn't that addressed previously? Uh, to kind of reiterate what Azil said, you know, the branding process the branding process joins souls to the vortex of souls. It's like a, the brand is like an IOU one soul to the vortex of souls. <laughs> so like once that once that brand happens, that's it for that person. It doesn't matter whether they die now or later. Their soul is marked as property, I guess, is a simple right. way to say it. And, you know, I mean, it's a soul. You can live 100 years, you're still going to die. And when you die, your soul is toast anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right. Question five. If Griffith is the Falcon of Light, that means he's the savior of the world. So, doesn't that make Guts the Falcon of Darkness? Well, like that entire pretext is like buying into the propaganda that has been distributed about Griffith and for the past several centuries. You know, the Holy See itself is a manipulation and an effect of causality. So, buying into that is becoming one of the blind white sheep as foretold in the prophecy of the Holy See. The readers themselves become the blind white sheep, <laughs> unable, unable to see that they're being manipulated. So, uh, but I mean, very simply, uh, I think what's kind of missed because what happens is the prophecy is introduced in volume 14 by Farnese, and then a little bit more is revealed of it in volume 22. Uh, and Shirke says that the Falcon of Light is also the Falcon of Darkness. You know, they are one and the same. They are, after all, uh, Griffith, of course, you know, they're aspects of who he is. They're, it's, it's kind of talking around the fact that Griffith or Femto in a physical form would be the Falcon of Light, and the Falcon of Darkness is, you know, who, who Femto would be. Femto leads the, the uh, dark, the black sheep, A, the apostles, and the Falcon of Light leads the blind white sheep, you know, the, all his followers, the humans in the physical world. So they are one and the same, and I think it also confuses people because of the way the Holy Iron Chain Knights in Farnese confuse the prophecy to mean guts. They, they latch onto all they can get their hands on at the time, which is there's this mysterious guy going around killing people and leaving you know these supernatural things in its wake. This must be the Falcon of Darkness, and I pe- think people must have much like latch onto that and then never realize that they were mistaken uh, all, all along that guts is not that. I think to be more specific, Griffiths, Femto, he's a falcon of darkness. The falcon of light, like you said, is a false prophet. It's something uh, the Holy See um, has distributed in the world, but it's probably been seeded by the forces of evil. And uh, Femto has played on that uh, hero image by appearing um, as a falcon of light, a literal falcon of male of light in the dreams of people. We see it, you know, in volume 17 where all the people of Midland dream of Falcon of Light. We see it again in volume 33, and even in volume 34, when Ganishka uh, becomes a giant Shiva monster, he's lured towards a, 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 you know wings of light in the distance. But of course, that's just an illusion. And the truth is that uh, you know he's a Falcon of Darkness. And to quote the prophecy, you know it says, when the sun will have died five times, a red lake will appear at the west of the city with a name both new and ancient. So that's Windham. And it will be the sign that the fifth angel is born, so that's the fifth member of the God Hand. The angel shall be a falcon of darkness, both master of the sinful black sheep and king of the blind white sheep. 
He's the one who should bring an age of darkness upon the world. So very simply, he's a master of the apostles. He's a king of whatever remains of mankind in Falconia. And he's going to like make the world a pretty bad place. Very simple, no contradiction anywhere. It's very clear. And what is God in all that? Well, it's nothing. He's not part of the prophecy. He's not in the Holy See's holy book. He's just a guy. And that's why we love him. He's just a guy that's going to take down you know, a prophet. The confusion that comes from that also, as I said in the initial part of the question, is that, well, Griffith must be the savior of the world because his actions have led to humanity's prosperity in Falconia. Uh, this is a, one of the more common questions or, or, I guess, statements or misconceptions that I see about Berserk recently. It's like people have bought into the God Hand's propaganda. Well, because the problem with that line of reasoning is that Griffith created that debacle to begin with. You know, yeah. Kanishka himself is a puppet soldier for the God Hand, even though he didn't know it at the time, to pres- basically present this scenario where Griffith could save the world while also enslaving humanity by forcing them down to live in one city ruled over by him. All of that was a manipulation. And I, I feel like if the misconception is that Griffith saved the world, it's like you didn't realize that the game was being played, was rigged <laughs> yeah. by the God Hand all along. <laughs> yeah, he saves them from the disaster he created in the first place. So like that's textbook bullshit, you know, manipulation. And I mean, you know, we, we don't quite know what is planned yet, but it's pretty clear that uh, the advent of Fantasia, which is the merging of the worlds, and, you know, the creation of Falconia, all of that uh, is pretty ominous. You know, they've corralled whatever is left of mankind into one, you know, specific place, which they rule, which is filled with apostles. Uh, the rest of the world has become... Uh, inhospitable, and all of that is a god ant's doing. So, you know, I mean, you know, people are not being saved from anything. They're, they're being spared for a specific reason. We don't know what that reason is yet, but you can bet it's not good. Question six. Why were they on the boat for so long? Oh, yeah, it's a boat. Why were they on that boat for so long, as Azeel? <laughs> well, first, it's a warship, not a boat, okay? And um, and they haven't actually been on that ship for so long. I mean, you know, they embarked on it in volume 32, and they arrived at the destination in volume 38. But, so that's six volumes. But what's important to remember is that a lot of, you know, that time was actually uh, on Griffith's side. And it's not like we had six volumes of just guts, you know, on the sea. And even when he puts that aside, the events that took place, uh, what they were at sea, uh, were not all on the actual ship. You know, they spent a good deal of time on the island. We had a flashback to Guth Youth, which we had never seen before. If you if you only take the part where Guth is shown during those six volumes, it's only three volumes. Most of that is on the island, which uh, personally is a part of the story I love, like the mystery of uh, the sea gods. You know, as a fan of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's work, it was a delight to see Mira's take on that kind of little horror story with, you know, the weird uh, sea shore guys who turn out to be monsters and everything. It also, you know, brought new characters like Isma in the story and new concepts like uh, that of Mana, which will come to play later on. And when you take that aside, it's just one single volume of actually seafaring episodes. And those episodes were also pretty damn cool. We got a lot of information out of it, a lot of character development, for example, between Farnese, Shiruke, Guts, 
Casca. We got to see, you know, Casca falling in the sea, Guts going there. We have a part where Guts uh, confronts the Beast of Darkness, pretty big part. And of course, we have sea battles, which are awesome. I mean, I don't know if you see those ship battles, but it's super detailed, super researched by Mura, very interesting. And these are just, like I, like I said, it's just 10 episodes. So, you know, most of the sea trip is actually not shown to us. And if Mura had not shown us those 10 episodes of fights and everything, people would have complained. I mean, come on, they, they go on the sea, they actually take a ship. You don't see a ship battle, so that's bullshit. I think a lot of it was also informed by the various, you know, hiatuses around that were kind of around this time. Of course. And also people feeling like they were in transit for too long. They, they, they saw the, the ship journey itself as a way to go from A to B. And they were somewhere in the middle for so long in terms of the actual release that no one bothered to pay attention to the actual storyline. They were so focused on getting to the destination that they didn't bother about the journey, right? Typical problem. Well, the problem with that reasoning, though, is that They've been on a journey since 2001. They set out for Elfhelm in volume 22, uh, you know, 16 years ago. And ever since then has been that part of that journey. So the fact that the journey continues on ship really structurally is no different from, you know, when they set out for Elfhelm back from Godot's, you know, cave. So I think Mira also achieved a number of things by focusing on this kind of side adventure along the way. He was able to demonstrate that the astral world uh, has changed how things work in the physical world. Mm-hmm. You know, he has this little parable about how this little fishing village was just, just basically wiped off the map by the sea god. I think it was pretty cool a way to manifest how the changes of the astral world might affect people in the real world. Yep. Um, well, that was a pretty cool story. And I, without it, if it was just a, I mean, like, what are the alternative here is. Right, is they have a sea voyage, right? And, and maybe they have a couple small individual character scenes and then they get to Elfham, it would feel like a real missed opportunity not to have, honest, like a sea adventure. Like, it's something we expected for years, even in the, even previously. I think we even joked about a ghost ship, like many, many years ago. Like, it would make sense to have some kind of ghost ship thing. And like, here it is. So yeah, I can kind of see as a matter of taste, if some parts of that story didn't work for you, I think the pirate boss does kind of wear himself thin. I, I thought it was personally funny, him him biting his comrades' heads and things like that. I like a sense of humor personally. He does have too many little battles, I think. It can, he can kind of like gets defeated and get, and comes back. It feels like four times. Maybe one less would have worn a little less thin. But again, that's a matter of taste. And I, I think the people that push back against that like is disproportionate to the actual impact of the story. Like people, a lot of people regard the boat section as like the darkest chapter in Berserk. It just feels like they're leaning a little too heavily on it. Uh, while also remembering how long the wait was for those episodes. Yeah. Especially since like, what, what would they have preferred? Like you said, just yeah. one episode and there, you know, thumbs. So it's like, how long did this last? One week, one month, six months. You know, that would be kind of cheap. And the other thing is you get like five volumes of just Griffith stuff and you don't see Guts. I mean, Guts is the main character of the story. He and his companions, that's what the story is about. Uh, When we see Griffith's side is to set up, you know, the final confrontation, but that's not the story itself. So you can't just do that. It's not so possible. You can't have five volumes without the main character. So that's also why it was spread over so long. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's what uh, people remember. Ten years from now, I doubt people will mind anymore. The new readers, they won't care. Question seven. Guts plunged the Dragon Slayer into the heart of the Sea God. 
That should have given him a significant power-up, right? The deal with uh, the Dragon Slayer is uh, what Skull Knight explains to Guts uh, in Volume 26. So Shuruke first saw there was a kind of dark aura around the blade, and the Skull Knight explains it, saying that it has been imbued with uh, you know, the remnants of all the thousands of evil beings that Gus has cleaved over the years. So it goes from apostles to specters, incubi, any kind of possessed creatures, all the evil spirits he's been battling, you know. All of that, killing them again and again, their essence has imbued the blade with, you know, a kind of astral property. What that means is that before you take a normal sword, a sword made of normal steel, you can't possibly hurt a member of the God Hand because they're spiritual beings and something from the corporate wars can't harm them. But that sword, now, because it has its properties, it can harm them. It allows it to reach farther into the astral world. And that's the difference. But it's not like it's more powerful, you know, it's not gonna shoot lasers or, I don't know, become a flame sword, you know, plus two damage. That's not how it works. It's just it can damage things that normal swords cannot damage. But it's not a matter of, like, the bigger creature you kill, the more power it gets. It it doesn't work like that. It's just, you know, killing the sea god probably did nothing much to it. So Ganeshka in in fog form is a perfect example of this whole problem, right? Mm -hmm. The dragon, a a traditional weapon, not even Zod, could make a scratch on Ganeshka's fog form. But Guts Dragon Slayer is uniquely qualified to leave a, a wound because it's attacking the astral body that was projected that could actually damage Ganeshka. Nothing else could. So right there, it kind of encapsulates why the Dragon Slayer's additional property is is powerful. It's not, you know, it can do more damage. It leaves lasting damage, and it can strike additional targets because of that, uh, of how it was changed over, over, over a number of years. Yep. Question 8. What even happened during the incarnation ceremony? There's a lot going on at once. We actually recently recovered it in the reread, and it is a rather complicated series of events that it's difficult to nail down in like a one statement. Yeah. So this is kind of a longer answer, so just bear with us. Yeah, so I guess as a reminder, to get the full picture, you need to understand what members of the God Hand are. They are spiritual beings. They don't have physical bodies. When they become members of the God Hand, their physical bodies abandoned, dissolved, whatever. So they do not have bodies made of flesh and bone and blood. That's what we're talking about here. When it's a physical, they're spirits. So they float around the astral world, whatever. Now, the incarnation ceremony, it's a once in a thousand years event. Very, very rare. Its goal is to force a member of the God Hand into the corporate world. So they come back into the physical world. So it was the first step in uh, their offensive into the world. Femto was chosen for the vanguard because he was, you know, the one who has most recently been uh, introduced to their uh, sequel. And he took the, over the body of Guts and Casca's son to use as a vessel and now rose as a new Griffith. So that's what happened. He just got a new body. Femto came into the world, took over a body, and he was once again a guy able to walk into the earth. Though, of course, he still had, you know, uh, all his powers. And it should be noted that it's not the old Griffith that returned. It's really still Femto just wearing a body. Right, and... We need to also touch on the fact that the incarnation ceremony begins the reshaping of the world. 
You know, Femto's presence in the physical world is like an aberration. It's not normal. And we begin to see cracks form in the world as a result of, of his presence there, which we'll, we'll get to in a couple other questions, I'm sure. Uh, you touched on something at the very end that I thought was really useful, and that is um, the, the whole Griffith equals Femto equals Griffith debacle. Uh, this is less of an issue now since volume 34. We see Griffith transform into Femto. Uh, but for many, many years before, a lot of people were convinced that Femto was a separate entity and that Griffith was, you know, the human form and that Femto was some kind of demonic being and that the two were, if not separated, then only, you know, kind of like, what's the word, uh, coincidentally linked, right? So I think these are just simple misunderstandings. Uh, the truth is fairly straightforward. During the eclipse, Griffith became Femto a member of the God Hand with a purely astral form. It's just like I said. He was transformed into Femto. He you know, was a guy and he be transformed into a supernatural being. His physical body was dissolved. His astral body was reformed, changed, rearranged by evil power into that of Femto. So it's not a new entity. It's not a new guy. It's an evolution of Griffiths into an evil supernatural uh, creature. So in the process of that transformation, of course, Griffiths was changed irremediably. His mind, his motivations, his personality is still, you know, there's the same basis, but it was changed, evolved, twisted into Femto, you know, somebody colder, you know, meaner, more evil with, you know, far bigger understanding of the world, everything like that. So as uh, we just mentioned, Femto was then incarnated two years later, meaning he acquired a physical body. Now, logically enough, that body was shaped to look like the one he originally had as a human. But the new Griffiths isn't human. It's not like the old Griffiths returned or anything like that. It's still Femto. He hasn't regained his empathy. He hasn't regained his feelings. He's not milder or anything like that. He, he hasn't changed. He's still Femto. He's got the same powers. He's got the same mentality, the same goals. He's Femto through and through. Uh, so one I want to interject real quick. I know you're just about to continue, but you know another common misconception that's related to this is that why Griffith or Femto was chosen to be you know the one that is incarnated. If other God Hand have been waiting for hundreds of years, why weren't they chosen? <laughs> why does the new guy get the best job? Well, it's really, I mean, if you think about it practically, Griffith was continuing his campaign. He already has some kind of influence over the physical world uh, because he was already regarded as the savior of Midland. Who else is better suited to resume that role and continue humanity down uh, you know, a path than Griffith himself? You know, like first off, they're a team. The Gold Hand is not, I don't know, a club where people are fighting to get a better position. They're a team. Each has his role. And that's how it's understood. And they're not like, they're not the ones deciding, you know, they still have a boss that decides this thing. And yeah, like you said, I mean, was a guy who came from 400s is a 400 years in the past going to return and do something or, you know, should they use a guy who everybody still remembers? And, you know, I mean, it's just obvious. Obviously, it's going to be Griffiths. He had already been set up. You know, like people have to realize that uh, there's a big plan, a grand scheme going on here. All these events are intertwined. So, you know, the rise of Griffiths, you know, was planned to be able to to be something he could build on after Femto, you know, returned to the world. It's something like he could use his past to further their agenda. It's not something, I don't, I don't know if it's clear what I mean, but it's all a grand part of a grand scheme. It's been, the idea of evil is not something, like it plans, like you said, centuries in advance, maybe millennia. 
So the plan is really, really tight. And that's why it makes sense for Griffiths to be the guy. I mean, that's he, he's made to, to do that. And the others all have their roles, and I'm sure they've been playing their roles and will play them in the future, but there's really no question it was going to be his role. Yes, and thank you for answering the interjection. You were about to continue about, you know, oh, yeah. the particular particularity between behind you know his new body you know it's still femto no change there but there is a wild card that was introduced by that process uh and of, of course it's the original inhabitant of the body he took which is the son of guts and casca so um their son was not destroyed in that process his consciousness still exists somewhere deep down within you know griffiths and this is shown in volume 22 when Griffiths confronts Guts on the Hill of Swords, uh, he can feel the boy, you know, his feelings and everything as he watches uh, Guts and uh, Zod fighting. And the boy actually forces him to protect Casca, you know, in spite of himself. So that fact, the boy's survival may prove to be very significant in the future. And people who are thinking that Femto must have a flaw, must have a weakness or something, well, look into that because that's the thing. Otherwise, Femto... Within Griffiths, no change. But the boy, he's the interference. Question nine. Would you please explain the deal with the moonlight boy? <laughs> well, this is something that, of course, that comes up a lot. It can be it can be hard to know exactly what's happening with the child or who the child is because the child's identity has never been officially confirmed by the manga yet, right? But Many people have been able to, and, and Azil foremost, because he was the first one that kind of tipped off the community to a potentially very revealing additional page that was added by Miura when Volume 28 came out, that you can put some stuff together to formulate a pretty solid thesis about the boy. So, Azil, with all respect, please continue. Well, yeah, so the boy in the moonlight, um, you know, mysterious new guy who appears in Volume 28. Who could he be? Uh, he's got this supernatural power. He's obviously very fond of Casca and even Guts, you know, like, hmm, really, I wonder. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> obviously, he's their son. He's Guts and Casca's son. He's got, you know, dark, long hair, kind of looks like Casca's. He's, you know, very fond of her, and she can feel him just like she always could feel her child. When he was a demon child, she always, you know, she could feel him in the fields, you know, brand. And, you know, he was drawn to it, everything, every time he appeared. Without even seeing him, she ran to him. Uh, when Griffiths came to see Guts in Volume 22, she could also feel his presence. And she came, and obviously she doesn't remember anyone from her past, so she didn't know it was, you know, the shape of Griffiths. But she could feel her boy within him. And that's why she ran to him. And now that, you know, he's shown up and under this new form, well, she can still, the same way, feel him. And she did on the beach. And she also did uh, on the Seagod's uh, island. So every time she, she runs to him, every time she sees him, and the boy, of course, uh, comes to the aid of Guts. He saved his life several times. He, he's also saved, you know, Casca's life in the process. So, yeah, it's still the same kid. He still cares about his parents. And now he's got supernatural power and he looks different. So why is that? Well, that's because Griffiths has taken over his body. And now he's part of... I don't know, the Griffiths Femto conglomerate. You know, it's a kind of a Trinity thing <laughs> going on. So, we, of course, we don't have the whole uh, details about that. But uh, what we can guess is that he's got power, he's not evil, and he can appear uh, during the full moon to his parents. 
the full moon part, what's interesting about it is that that whole concept of the full moon having special properties was introduced right alongside the boy. So it's no coincidence that those two things were introduced right alongside each other because they build on each other. And basically, Shiorke explains how on the moon, uh, you know, magic is more effective or more potent, and it also makes people's quote-unquote minds more unhinged. Shirke tells that last part to Guts as a reminder to keep himself, you know, aware as he's in combat with uh, the Crocs. But really adds another special meaning as well, that this force that exists within Griffith's body that has already been able to exert influence on him on the Hill of Swords, the full moon also acts in that way, making Griffith uh, unable to control parts of his body or his body during full moons. Uh, Which brings us to, you know, kind of a big reveal in volume 28 that Azil caught... Thirteen years ago, it was two thousand four. Yeah, uh, when you first posted this crazy thing, you read that part of the story. You know, that with a kid and everything, guts feels something in his brain, and he turns around and looks out of a cliff, and you just see like the cliff and a shadow on it. And um, you know, Mira actually added a page in the volume to draw more attention to that part. Uh, and you know, where guts is like, hmm, I thought I saw something, and. When you actually look at that uh, shadow on the cliff, well, it just so happens to look like Zot's shadow from uh, his profile. So uh, what's implied here is that, you know, Zod probably either brought the kid, you know, like he would bring Griffiths or follow him up to know what was up with him. So it's something that's not come to play yet. It's been kept a secret, but, you know, it implies bigger things, you know, coming in the future. I think Zod definitely has used his transportation. We've seen Griffith using Zod as transportation since he was introduced in Volume 21. But also, the kid returns to the cliffs uh, as he makes his departure from the cabin on the sea. Yep. So it's like he's returning to where he he began, which is, you know, Zod. Yep. Later, the boy doesn't need such transportation because the worlds have merged. We see him use the world spiral tree to transport back to presumably Falconia, you know, shooting through the trees, trunks in this really awesome way. Yeah. Through the branches. Yeah. He travels. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. And there's one more, um, one more part is that uh, during the sea God incidents. So guts is, you know, he's drowning in the blood of the beast. Uh, you know, he can't, he doesn't know which way is up or down and he can't see anything. He's weak, but the boy appears to him uh, in spirit form. And what's interesting is that, you know, in that spirit form, the boy's hair looks like Casca's uh, in the real world. Now it looks like Griffith. You know, it's very distinctively made to be reminiscent of uh, Griffith's. So, you know, that's another hint, a very strong hint towards uh, his identity. And, uh, you know, what's funny is Mura is a bit devious, you know. He made a play, it reminds me of the whole deal when the Holy Iron Chain Knights were confused about the identity of Guts, mistaking him from the Falcon of Darkness. Uh, Mira made Shiruke wonder about the boy, and she said, well, maybe he's an agent of uh, the Sovereign of um, Flower Storm, you know, which uh, now we know is uh, Danan. And he thought maybe it was one of his agents or maybe even an avatar of uh, of the sovereign. Maybe she appeared to them in that form to guide them or something like that. Uh, but as they arrived on Elfham, uh, no one's mentioned it. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, in any case, the evidence is overwhelming that it's uh, their son. I mean, it doesn't make any sense otherwise. But, you know, it's, Correct. It, it's funny that Mira uh, did that. And at the time, I was like, ha. Huh, Who's going to fall for that? I mean... Many people. <laughs> but yeah, it turns out many people are like, oh God, Shuriki said so, it must be the case. And I'm like, guys, for real. But, you know, I mean, we've known for years who he was, but 
you know, I mean, it's 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 funny. I think it's uh, it shows Mirai's a bit playful. I think it's I think it's useful to to reestablish those things when when something like that comes up, right? Because it doesn't refute it. It it makes it gives an additional bend in the argument that can easily pretty easily be gotten around. I think it's actually interesting that Shirke points to. Well, this thing, this being is obviously very powerful. It's able to, I was able to go under my nose all along while still being extremely powerful. It must be the Sovereign of the Flower Storm. It couldn't be anything else, right? So it's already pointing to a being of great power. She's just not right about which one it is. Yeah. You know, that's what's interesting about her explanation. And she also, she's also mistaken because she thinks it's somebody uh, who's helping them. So yeah, it is. Exactly. Who else could it be? Right. It, certainly, it, it wouldn't make sense for it to be the God Hand. She, she's not aware of all the shit that readers are aware of at this point. So if she had our information, she would have no problem coming to the same conclusion. Yeah, from a perspective, uh, she, she can't possibly, you know, make the right guess. It's impossible. She doesn't have the facts. Question 10. What is evil and evil power in Berserk? Is there a difference? This is something that I feel like uh, Japanese readers are going to have no trouble with yeah. because it's very clear. But English readers, uh, because the meaning doesn't carry over well, when the term evil is used in Berserk to describe things like, you know, apostles being empowered, or in volume 34, when Griffith orders the apostles to transform, he says, unleash evil, you know, unleash evil. I think the, I think uh, Dark Horse translates a little differently, but evil is still used. So the question is, you know, what is evil or evil power? And is there a difference? Like morally, is it a power? Is it a thing? What is it? So, Azil? Yeah, so um, like you said, I mean, it's, I think, just to begin, in Berserk, unfortunately, Miram uses many, many complicated terms or terms who have very specific nuances. And it's often showed, for example, in humor, you know, Puck's jokes, or like you said earlier, the, the pirate uh, boss jokes. I mean, these things, they can be, get lost in translation. It can be difficult to get, you know, the particular humor of it if you, if you don't get the context. And in this case, it's a, uh, Really, one of the most prominent one is that ma, which is a Japanese word used here, it doesn't just mean evil as a moral concept. It means evil power as in magic. So when you talk about a witch, for example, it's called majo. So, you know, it's a power that can be honest. And when apostles, for example, are filled with evil, when Korad, you know, says a fissure will open your heart into which evil we pour, he means literally you know, their soul will be infused with evil power. So that's important because, you know, like some people like to get into philosophical arguments about the relative nature of evil and so on. But here it's it's pretty clear. When the apostles are evil, they are evil. They are infused with evil power and it makes them do evil shit. So there's actually not much leeway here in how you interpret these things. It's pretty specific. Right. So a lot of times people will say, well, we've seen apostles doing some nice things like Irvine covering up Sonia with his jacket or, you know, Grunveld saving Sonia from an otherwise pretty depraved apostle. While they might do nice things, they are at their core infused with evil power. And while it's a power source and it does not exclusively mean moral evil, these are pretty evil people. I mean, they are the ones that have made sacrifice, sacrifices and basically have appetites for humanity uh, from to varying degrees. So there's really no argument that they're evil or not. And I think it's strange that readers often get tripped up on that. Yeah, I think it's a desire for some people to argue and try to take another approach, maybe 
you know, another intellectual approach to the thing. But I mean, it's not, there's plenty of things in Berserk that are open to interpretation and debate and, you know, kind of many nuances and, you know, but in this case, it's honestly pretty straightforward. I mean, you've got the vortex of souls where the evil souls, you know, are gathered and they are, it's a, there's a big ocean of souls. They're divided by karma. The good ones go on one side, the bad ones go into the vortex of souls, which is another side. So it's where the bad karma goes. And that's the kind of power source that's used to create apostles and members of the God Hand. And they become twisted. They eat people, they kill people, they rape, whatever. So honestly, no contest. Question 11. Who are the apostles and how are they made? Could it be that they are the bad guys? It's established pretty early in the manga that apostles, you know, were once humans who were transformed into monsters. We see the Count in Volume 3, his whole scenario from when he was a, you know, mostly okay human turned into this, you know, slug monster through the transformation process. You know, during that sacrificial ceremony process, you know, apostles are imbued with evil power, which... Uh, basically injects their souls with evil power, which physically changes their bodies. They're able to turn at will into supernatural monsters. Uh, what's interesting is that when they die, when their soul is taken back to the vortex of souls, their body reverts to its human self because that part of their soul has been reclaimed by the vortex of souls. Yep. So it shows that the body itself is just a couple bodies and imbued with evil. It's only twisted as a reflection of the soul. Uh, another thing that trips up people is that initially the apostles we see kind of all align in the ravenous, salivating monsters. But quickly, Mira introduces characters that don't necessarily fit that mold, at least outwardly, right? So, but I don't think it's that difficult to understand because, you know, just like humans, you know, appetites for depravity are varied, you know. Some people are more evil or more or, or lesser human beings than others. So there's a, there's a gradient happening here. Yeah. Um, but they're all evil due to the sacrifice they made and the fact that there's evil power, you know, in their souls. Uh, their forms also vary quite a bit. You know, we have a minotaur basically in Zod and we have a metallic centaur in Locus. And there's even like a little tiny snail guy people like to pick on from the eclipse, you know, a little tiny guy. So I think the easiest way to understand that is, you know, there's two things happening here. One is their forms, their apostle forms are like dark reflections of who they might have been as humans, you know, infused the evil power of a proud warrior before their apostle form is a reflection of a slothful loser without much direction in life. Maybe their apostle form is a reflection of it. But there's also the other factor of. Practically, Miura wanted to create interesting, varied character designs for these apostles, and he had had to have them look distinct from some of the lower tier ones. And so naturally, that comes out in the design. So I think those two things answer it, even though neither of those are explained in the manga. It's something you have to extrapolate as a reader. There are three examples that I think show very well the diversity of apostles and how they are all individuals. The first is Wild, which is not at all loyal to the God Hand, who even threatens to kill Griffiths because he wants power. So he's stupid, greedy, and disobedient. Then there's Ganishka, who, as a, an emperor, actually tries to rebel against you know, Griffiths and refuses to bend the knee. You get something like Roshin, who's, as a kid, you know, lives on her childish fantasies, even though it's evil. You know, she still lives on in a child's mind. So. Yeah, I think that shows a very wide-ranging diversity of apostles. Question 12. What exactly happened on top of Ganeshka anyway that made the world change? I think uh, because none of it is verbally explained in the manga, a lot of it uh, trips up a lot of new readers who 
aren't aware of the kind of the different components that were active at that time. So if you don't understand these three things, then the result of it is not going to make a lot of sense. You know, the first is how the three overlapping worlds work, the physical, the astral, and the ideal worlds. The second part is the effect of Skull Knight's, you know, Behirat Sword technique. And the third is, you know, what Ganeshka actually had become when he went down into that uh, artificial Behirat and the power source, where his power came from. Understanding these three things allows you to understand the resulting explosion and why that changed the world. So we will go into it in that way. Um, Azil, you want to start with the three worlds part? Sure. As explained by Flora and Shiroke in volume 24, there are three overlapping worlds in Berserk, uh, the corporeal, the astral, and the ideal world, each with their own properties and rules. Uh, so the humans, plants, animals, minerals, whatever, they occupy the physical world. That's pretty straightforward. Magical beings occupy the astral world, so there's a wide range of them. It's a, a layered world, as it's explained to us. So it goes from trolls and elves to specters and many other such fantastic creatures. Basically, whatever you can think of, giants, goblins, everything. And the deeper you go, the more otherworldly uh, the beings become. So you go deep, you start seeing the spirits. Shuke calls on for help, like the Lord of Rotting Roots or the Lady of the Death or everything. And then you get even greater beings like the four kings of the world. So the astral world is also where the god hand resides. Uh, at the bottom of it is a great ocean of human souls. What I mentioned earlier, where souls are separated according to karma. It features that big whirlpool that we're all too familiar with, the vortex of souls. So uh, the ideal world is a formless world of ideas. It's loosely based on Plato's theory of forms which is also known as, uh, known as a theory of ideas. So it's not just like a place where ideas float. You know, ideas, as you would understand the common definition of the word in English, it's more like, you know, the perfect forms of, you know, specific concepts, stuff like that. So anyway, that's a part we don't really know much about. There's, um, we actually know almost nothing other than the fact it exists. Yeah, it's only been introduced like once in volume 24, mentioned as an aside when they're establishing the three worlds. The two that are the most pertinent to the story thus far have been, of course, the physical world where the vast majority of the story has taken place. And now the astral world, which we've seen in various instances like Enoch and the Cliffoth, uh, and now, of course, the entire world. Yeah, and, you know, and of course, there's also the idea of evil, which is like the, I guess, most obvious uh, connection to it and um, as a reminder the reason we call it idea of evil and not idea of evil is because although it's written the same it's actually a greek word yeah so mira uses a greek word for it uh, and it's again a reference to plato so yeah the second aspect as we said was uh, the behirat sword technique that skull knight uses to, uh, in an attempt to attack femto and of course that attack is subverted by femto onto ganishka uh, so how does that technique work so uh, Behirits are inherently linked to the deeper parts of the astral world. That's established in Volume 13 in Episode 82, uh, when Griffith has his little talk with the idea of evil, the one that wasn't cut out of the manga. Uh, but they maybe even go beyond that, you know. But when they activate, uh, they allow humans to be brought to the god hand deep down in the astral world. So by coating his blade in them, Skull Knight is able to convert the Behirits' natural dimension-crossing ability into a weapon that cuts through the layers of the world, the ones we just described above. And uh, an analogy that Azil came up with was that Behirits can be like, uh, can prick a needle hole into the fabric of the world, uh, which is then widened to bring people to the Gatan. So by melting a bunch of these Behirits onto, uh, within, within himself and coating a sword with them, Skull Knight can cut a tear through that same fabric. Yep. 
And he, he created that weapon with the intent of killing the God Hand with it. But we've also seen that he can basically travel instantaneously with it. A pretty convenient weapon, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, the, the final part is uh, Ganishka. I mean, what happened is Ganishka was wounded. He was desperate. So he plunged himself into the artificial behemoth he had created with Daiba. So that's a contraption that used dozens of captured apostles that they had soon to get together, you know, into some kind of gross, big, you know, vat and filled with strange stuff. And they'd managed to create a portal to the deaths of the Astra world like that. They'd been using it to create the Daka, which uh, were evil soldiers. So what they did is they, uh, you know, plunged women, pregnant women into it, and it imbued the fetuses with evil in the mother's womb. They were born immediately as kind of, you know, evil creatures and grew into monsters. So in order to confront Griffiths and the, you know, overwhelming power he had, Ganishka descended as deep as he could into the astral world, and he, you know, took up as much power as he could manage. But the result is that enormous power he had taken to himself was so much that his corporeal form wasn't enough for it. It resulted in a giant inflated body that expanded and expanded until he reached through the crowds. He also went mad because he was unable to handle that much power. We saw he had many faces. He couldn't recognize anything. And the title of that episode, The Blind Idiot God, sums it up perfectly. The result is that when the Skull Knight struck at Femto on top of Ganishka with his buried sword, Femto was expecting him. He intercepted and deflected the attack. He twisted it so that it struck Ganishka instead. And when it did that, it cut through him, not just you know on a corporeal level in the flesh, but on the astral level. And then, like an overblown balloon that tears in the middle, Ganishka was ripped inside out. He immediately burst, and the enormous astral power that he had brought forth washed over the corporeal world, covering it integrally in one big wave of light, which uh, is now known as the blast of the astral world. Thus, the world where no longer separated, they became one, which we call Fantasia. And, uh, you know, the key part of understanding this and the part that gets a lot of people tricked up is like, yeah, I, I get it that Fumto used that attack on Ganishka and he exploded, but what I don't get is why that big explosion ushered in a new world with all these fantasy creatures, which is understandably... Again, a little confusing because the manga doesn't really spell it out exactly. But Azil? Yeah. So when Ganishka was split open, uh, he didn't just spill an enormous amount of spiritual energy over the world. He also uh, created a kind of you know, giant channel between them. As you recall, something took his place. It's a giant tree. It's called the World Spiral Tree. And it links the two worlds together like a kind of four-dimensional you know, uh, channel. It's pulling them together, causing them to merge. Hence, creatures that were previously never or only seldom seen through small tears between the worlds are now everywhere. So uh, it's important to note that by the time Ganishka exploded, the terrain had already been prepared by the forces of evil for that to come true. Femto's coming into the world had already opened up the way a little, which is why we saw isolated incidents like uh, the trolls attacking uh, Enoch in Volume 24. And we also recently learned that spiritual trees... He existed all over the world, acting as a kind of safety valve against the merging of the worlds. What they did is they drained the power of the world's power tree to prevent it from linking the corporeal world and the astral world together. They were also each protected by a magician. 
But almost all of them have been destroyed by the forces of evil to make way for Falconia. Flora's tree was one of these, and Flora was a magician. And uh, they've been killed by uh, the apostles sent by Griffiths. Yep. Which, of course, leads us to, uh, you know, why this is all happening to begin with. You know, what is the master plan? What are the God Hand's end goal in merging the worlds? Um, which was, of course, required centuries of planning, if not more. Uh, now we're in a scenario where humans are forced to live in one giant city, but to what end? So, Azil? Well, yeah, obviously we don't we don't know yet what the end goal is. We we don't have a clear picture, but we have clues. I mean, the Golden No has greater access to the world of humans than ever before, and they've even managed to park almost all surviving humans into wide giant city. You know, I'm, you know, a lot of people died during the advent of Fantasia, which, you know, works in the favor of the God Hand, and the remaining ones are all in, in Falconia. The God Hand has also seemingly rid themselves of most magic users, meaning no one can oppose them or even understand what the hell is happening. They just, they just have to say, well, it's like that. And people are like, okay, um, if you say so. So people are literally sheep being placidly led to the slaughter. And the God Hand's control over mankind is almost absolute these days. So... Obviously, you know, it's been, their plan has been a success so far. And that's as far as we can really go in terms of giving a concrete answer to what the God Hand are planning. But I would like to point out, just slightly dipping my toe into the speculation area, which I know is not the purpose of this podcast, but Mir is clearly push, pushing the story in a certain direction. You know, we see Falconia gearing up. Uh, in the last part we see of it is, as Rickert departs anyway, is that there's these massive machines being made, weaponries being created. And I, I can't imagine that's just to defend the walls of Falconia. You know, it seems like Griffith and his forces might push outward from Falconia, uh, perhaps to eradicate magical creatures, which it seems like that's where things are headed. If, if one side of the planet exists to merely support humanity and eradicate you know, astral creatures. And the other side, we have this group that is able to live in harmony with astral creatures. You have this, you know, this polarity happening. And I, and I wonder if that's the direction the story is going, uh, but we don't know. You know, the answer is we don't know. We have some hints, but not really any truth. Question 13, the beast of darkness. What is it? Is it from hell? Is it guts drive to survive? Could it have existed before the eclipse? The Beast of Darkness is the psychological manifestation of the trauma Guts endured at the eclipse. And this gradually grew during his time that he was uh, shrouding himself in darkness, hunting apostles as the Black Swordsman, pushing the limits of his body and, of course, his sanity. Uh, it's not supernatural, though, and it's not a separate entity. Uh, it exists only in Guts' mind. Uh, and this can be confusing to a lot of people because of the way it's portrayed in the manga in several scenes. Uh, to readers, sometimes it looks like a physical manifestation, but actually, uh, not really the case. The reason the Beast of Darkness is portrayed like that is to make it more interesting to the readers, uh, plainly speaking, you know, compared to, for example, uh, just having Guts mumbling to himself and uh, act like a schizophrenic. So it's a technical personification, which uh, in this case, I guess, might be called zoomorphism. Basically, it's you take an abstract feeling or thing and you give it a tangible form because it's a cooler way and more visual way to tell a story. So in classical Greek uh, plays, for example, you would have time or death, which would be shown as characters, you know, changing the scene or the scenery or explaining, you know, that stuff is going on. It's the same thing here. It's an abstract thing that has been given a form 
because it's just a better way to tell the story. Right. So, I mean, it kind of goes without saying at this point, but when the Beast of Darkness is speaking to Guts, it's actually really Guts speaking to himself. And you actually can sh- tell that with the way the, it's worded in Japanese. Yeah, the, it's the darkest part of himself is pushing forward. Uh, all his negative emotions, the hatred, the rage, but also the, the fear and the sadness and the guilt. Uh, you could kind of equate it with Freud's concept of death drive as, a pro- as opposed to the will to live. Uh, it wants guts to drop everything and run it and grip his throat to satisfy that craving for revenge that drives him, uh, which would, of course, in many instances be suicidal. There's so many instances in the manga where Guts has had to be pulled back from his suicidal or negative tendencies as a result of that aspect of himself. Yeah, indeed. I mean, the Beast of Darkness goals are pretty straightforward. He just wants Guts to go kill Griffiths. You know, he wants him to revel in his revenge, to not care about anything else. And um, that's why it pushes for his friends, and especially for Casca, uh, to die. That's because they prevent Guts from doing that. They are hindrance. They make him hold on to life. They make him care about other things and revenge. Uh, and yeah, Gus has put his revenge aside in order to care for Casca for uh, quite a while now. And the Beast of Darkness just can't endure it. You know, that, that part of him wants revenge. And that's what it shows to us. You know, that, that duality of the Beast uh, telling him that it will lie low, wait for the moment. And when he loses these people, it can swallow him whole. It explains to the reader that while Gus has chosen Casca over his revenge, deep down, he hasn't let go of that desire. He still wants to go and kill Griffiths. Right. And there's there's one last thing that often comes up when we're talking about the beast, and that is, uh, did it exist before the eclipse? You know, oftentimes people try to combine Guts, uh, you know, the rage-filled white eyes that we see so many times with the beast. But that's really just a visual cue Mira uses to exemplify Guts, you know, its fighting spirit, if that's what you want to call it, which is now, of course, a trait that embodies the beast and the, the beast shares with Guts. But that does not signify that it was the beast, because um, the, the Beast of Darkness should be viewed as a manifestation of Guts' trauma from the Eclipse, much like Casca's own trauma has driven her insane, trapping her mind inside as this nightmare of her own creation. Question 14. What's the relationship between the Beast and the Berserk's armor? Ah, that's one of my favorite topics. So uh, the Berserk's armor is a cursed magical item that suppresses people's pain and fear. Uh, it eliminates their inhibitions and it emphasizes their fighting instincts. It pushes the user beyond the limits of the human body, including when they can damage it. And all of this is achieved because it's odd, which is a, a spiritual essence, something akin to the chi you would hear about in a Kung Fu movies. Uh, so its art is like a great flame that will engulf the art of the one who wears it. Uh, it makes it burn and you know grow and grow and become irrepressible. And the cursed part comes from the fact that the user doesn't care anymore whether or not they're injured. They just keep going and going, fighting mindlessly, and the stronger the will to fight is, the stronger the effect is. That also means they don't fight particularly intelligently. Like, for example, they won't dodge an attack even if they could, and they don't recognize friend from foe anymore, hence the name Berserk's Armor. And as we just discussed, uh, the Beast of Darkness is a representation of the dark side within God's mind. So we know that the Berserk's Armor works by boosting the wearer's aggressive side and suppressing everything else. Therefore, what better symbol for it to take than the Beast of Darkness? It's what symbolizes Guts' rage and his hatred against his sworn enemies and so on. So it is perfect for it. Um, 
it should also be noted that this is something the armor does for everybody, as far as we know. Uh, it's not just guts. Case in point, the previous user was a Skull Knight, and uh, which, that's why the helmet of the Bazax armor, when Gus found it, was shaped like a skull, because for the Skull Knight, or rather Geyseric, let's go ahead and say it, uh, that skull was a representation of his you know, fighting spirit, his instinct, or whatever. Um, the armor adapts to a new user whenever it's first worn and taking the shape that best mirrors uh, the psyche. Uh, one thing I did want to add to that was you mentioned that it does the same thing for every uh, user of the armor, and that I would definitely agree with you on that. The one thing I think it would be different about Guts is he had this pre-existing conflict within him that is manifested in his brain as this you know, beast of darkness. So it's a little specialized for him because it does have this kind of pre-existing form that at least the readers have been privy to. So uh, I'm not sure that everyone would have that same kind of inner conflict that manifests in this way. Yeah, sure. I mean, we the difference is that uh, the way the story is told, we are shown that the Beast of Darkness as a kind of, like I said before, a personification of God's feelings. Uh, whereas, I mean, for the Skull Knight, I don't know. I mean, he probably didn't have that, that thing in his, you know, mind, that kind of mental construct going on, but that's what represented it. And I mean, you know, the armor he was currently still does. But yeah, I mean, for example, for Serpico, would it take a specific shape? Would it be like a fox or something? I don't know. It's hard to tell. So yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's also a thematic thing. And I mean, visually, it looks cool. You know, for a manga, there's always all these different aspects. And obviously, it looks cool. And there was already this thing uh, Mira was playing with. So it makes sense for the armor to use it, of course. Resident Eve. <clears throat> Question 15. Behirits require blood to use, right? This is a very common misconception. I think it stems both from how most behirits are depicted once they're activated, along with a misunderstanding of how behirits actually activate. Uh, the presence of blood in most instances of the Behirat being activated, it is actually incidental if you look at all the different occurrences of it. So, of course, yes, it was present in one of the most iconic moments of activation, the Eclipse. But, uh, excuse a pun, but a counterexample is the Count's Behirat, which was sitting on a nearby table on a pedestal, untouched by blood. So even though they're often depicted in many bloody situations... Uh, it's more for dramatic effect because behirits don't inherently need blood because they activate at a predetermined moment, resonating with, and the way the manga words it is, the wailing of the soul of their owner. So basically, when their owners are in their most desperate moment, clinging to life, the behirit will activate and give them a chance to confer with a god hand and sacrifice something in order to transcend that weakness and possibly their own death. And I said owner earlier, but really, the behirit's true owner is, of course, the idea of evil. Because anyone, any human possessing a Behirat is merely passing it off, uh, borrowing it, is if, if you will. They're not truly the ones that decide how it activates, which is a great transition into our next question. Question 16. Is the idea of evil even real? Is it considered canon? <laughs> well, yes. Yes, it is. We see it at the end of episode 82, which is titled God of the Abyss, uh, when Griffith descends into the Abyss. So what throws people off, I think, is that episode 83, which is a key episode that reveals tons of details about the idea of evil, 
including its name, uh, was not included in Volume 13. It was published in uh, Young Animal back then in um, 1996, but Mira felt it revealed too much about the world, too early in the story, and so he decided to remove it, not include it in the volume. Uh, however, that removal doesn't affect the uh, idea of evil's existence, since it's still shown in the manga, still shown in the volume. Um, yeah, uh, and it was uh, also been indirectly referenced a few times since then. Uh, I think the most prominent example is in Volume Twenty Four, when Flora explains to Guts that he's mistaken about the way Beharis walk. She tells him it's not like. Uh, fuck. She tells him it's not like they can be activated if you find the right way. Rather, it's tied to the true master, the one who sends them into the world. It's an ever greater existence than the goat hand. That master decides when and how they should activate and makes it so they are where they are needed when they should be needed. And there's no doubt from the way she says it and from what we know of how berets are created in you know episode 82 that she's talking about the idea of evil. Which, by the way, the name is interesting in itself. Uh, idea is a Greek word and the kanji for it in Japanese mean source. So idea of evil as in the source of evil, the origin of evil in Berserk. Another thing worth noting is that nothing was revealed in episode 83 that's been contradicted or retconned by the story so far. Even though it has considerably developed over the past 21 years, the story hasn't yet to excise the idea of evil, the idea of evil from Berserk's history. So as to whether we'll actually ever see the idea of evil again, as opposed to all these hints we have of its existence, we don't know. Uh, when we asked Kentaro Mira about it back in 2009, he said he wasn't sure if we'd see it in the story again. So that's that for now. Question 17. Casca enjoyed being raped at the eclipse. Who even asked that? You know I was there, right? This is just full of shit. This is probably my absolute least favorite topic in all of Berserk. Yeah. Uh, and it comes up more often than you would think, really. Uh, after the sacrifice, Casca was in disbelief at what Griffith had done to their group. And then she watched her friends massacred one by one by monsters. And after this harrowing escape and harrowing fight, her weapon is broken. Her armor is ripped off, leaving her defenseless. And she's grabbed by these monsters Um basically sexually assaulted. Uh, she falls unconscious during that time. Uh, at that point, Femto takes her body, gropes her until she wakes up. After that, she's so confused, in pain, crying, bleeding, voicing her anguish, saying no. I'm not sure what all of that, how all of that manifests in people saying she's supposed to be enjoying being violated while Guts, her lover, is pinned down and forced to watch. You know, this all is a scene of horror. It's made to horrify the reader. So the confusion in this, I'm not really sure where it comes from, but what we can get into it. Beyond all that, when you look at how the story is handled, uh, I mean, that whole deal shattered her mind and made her terrified of men, and particularly the touch. She's been afraid of men ever since then. It's a basis for her insanity over the past 27 volumes. And it's even the key moments that give birth to Guts' beast of darkness as well. You know, the scenes that burn in his mind. So just so it's clear, you know, the reason Casca ran towards Griffiths in volume 22 isn't because she bears no beef against Griffiths for raping her. As we explained a bit earlier in this podcast, it's because she recognizes her son in him, regardless of his physical appearance. She otherwise doesn't know who that face belongs to. But when it comes to that moment... She's been forever broken by it, and it's it's taken going to Hellfilm, seeing the Queen of the Elves, 
and you know shuriken finally is going into her mind and everything and even now she's still not fixed so that event was tremendously traumatic and i think there's really no doubt that she did not absolutely not enjoy it at all the other thing that comes up with the eclipse in regards to the rape is whether Casca was already raped by the apostles once Femto got to her, but there's actually no indication that Casca was raped by the apostles. Uh, if she'd already been raped by everything around her at that point that we saw, she would have been torn into pieces and lanced. It would have been grotesque, just like all the other pieces of body that they see around that scene. Raping her with those monstrous appendages would have either killed her outright or severely wounded her. But that's not how the manga depicts it. You know, she's shown as bleeding, certainly, but we see several cuts from the claws holding her on her thighs. If you really actually bother to look, if it had been from penetration by a big monstrous penis, uh, we can assume there'd be a little bit more than a trickle of blood at that point. Furthermore, from a narrative perspective, having the rape happen off the page totally deflates the tension of that scene. Yeah, I mean, your claim to taking his turn uh, after a bunch of random apostles would, I think, completely nullify the dramatic tension of the moment. Like, the, the entire scene hinges on the fact we don't know whether she will be raped or not. She had been in that situation many times before, like with Wild, for example, and every time it was a close call, but she escapes it, or God saves her, or whatever. It's the same here. With the apostles about to impale her in front of Guts, who rushes to her head, but he stopped. And then they're interrupted as the last second, and she's saved. Same as it's always been. But then Femto arrives, and he proceeds to violate her in front of Guts. That dashed hope is the reason that Sen is so powerful. The reason. The entire thing is constructed specifically to stab you in the heart at the last moment and then twist the knife as it goes on and on. That's why the reader can so effectively relate to Gus and identify themselves with him. That's why so many people of the years have said that they hate Griffiths and everything. It's because the way it's constructed. They get to watch this impossibly long scene, powerless to make it stop, just like Gus. So the idea is that Femto was like, I don't know, number 12 in the queue, aside from the fact they wouldn't have been anything left but dispatched body parts for him to play with, it completely ruins the conception of the scene. It wouldn't have any tension anymore. It wouldn't make any sense. Uh, we've said the same thing in several threads at this point, uh, but a regular retort we get to this that I've seen is that in Casca's flashbacks, it's usually the apostles she sees visions of. It's never Femto's actual rape that she sees. But I believe that's because they're the ones who sexually assaulted her and made her powerless, stripped her of her armor, killed her friends, Femto's rape is the thing that actually destroyed her mind. It's probably a memory that's buried deep in her mind. In fact, we're still not even there yet in the current episodes when we're actually digging into Casca's mind. So that's why I believe it was never Femto in her flashbacks. Uh, furthermore, if they continually showed that or referenced that scene over and over, it would probably dilute the power of, the, of that vision if it were recalled at every instance of assault. Obviously, that moment is the one she's the most repressed, you know. It's what she's afraid of facing. So if any random bandit could, you know, summon it in her mind, it actually wouldn't make much sense. And besides that, in every scene uh, we've shown uh, her having a flashback, you know, it's this kind of these guys grabbing her and everything, a bunch of uh, bandits. And so it actually makes more sense in the context to have her re remember the apostles grabbing her than uh, Fetto actually raping her because, you know, it's just not the same actual situation. Question 18. There are so many rumors about Kintaro Miura. How can I possibly know which are true and which are wrong? 
it's pretty regular to see people complain about Mira that he spends too much time on the art and there must be some you know one one key reason for the delayed delays in his release schedule uh, and indeed Mira has explained how much time he spends on each page back in 2011 he'd said it was about a day or one page per day but that alone does not explain the hiatuses what it explains is that Berserk is now published once a month instead of twice a month uh, that's a result both of the fact that the art has gotten instantly detailed over the years, but also the fact that Mira has intentionally slowed down his pace. He's now 51 years old, and he needs to pace himself to get his work done. He can't work for over 80 hours a week like he used to. There was a recent comment in the Mira comments thread that Puella has been translating over the years. I think it was in 2001 at this point. He said he was taking his first break in 13 years or something like that. His first real vacation is what he'd said in 13 years. And that gives you an idea of how he basically worked himself to the bone during the earliest years of Berserk without really pausing. And now that he's gotten a little older and he's thinking about wrapping the series up, he has the leeway to actually work at a schedule that makes sense for you know his work-life balance. Because before, there clearly was no balance. So I would say to the people that complain about the hiatus is like, I can I can I can understand that it's a little annoying if you're not really used to the pace of Berserk, but like if you actually truly want to see Berserk through to its end, which is to say you care about Miura's sanity and his health, then these hiatuses are just the price you must pay as a fan. Yeah, not to mention uh, the quality of the series. I mean, quality is not the result of you know rushing and doing things quick and dirty. And it doesn't matter how it's done. You know, it's a careful consideration and you know applying your talents over and over again. So, anyway, as to how Mira actually spends the hiatuses exactly, well, the thing is, we don't know for sure. I mean, again, like Walter said, he's now over 50, and after spending most of his adult life working six days a week, he probably needs to go a little slower. So, however, people really shouldn't get the idea that he simply relaxes during that time, even though he would have every right to. Uh, uh, he's said before that he he works even when the pre-publication is halted. And we've been told that he implicated himself in, uh, you know, products like the recent uh, Berserk TV series and the light novel about Grand Belt. So his time has been, you know, spent on these things, among others. And we can also speculate that as the series is reaching its peak and many elements uh, will have to be tied together coherently, Mira needs maybe to plan things out in advance some more so that they fit together well until the ending. And that's not something that's easy. If you look at many long series over the years, uh, be it The Wheel of Time or The Dark Tower or whatever, even uh, um, The Song of Ice and Fire, which has been adapted at Game of Thrones, all of these book series, uh, you know, they kind of went to shit in the end because the authors couldn't quite you know, tie it all together. It's easy to start many things, many plot branches, many new things, many new characters, but when it comes a time to tie them all back together coherently, it all makes sense, it's all badass, that's when it's hard. And Mira, you know, probably needs to take some time to ensure that it is indeed badass and, and really great and excellent uh, to the end. I'm actually struggling to come up with a series that had a great start and a great ending. <laughs> I'm sure they're out there. I'm not saying there's never been a series that had that, but I'm saying 
come to think of one on top of my head, it's actually really difficult because so many series drop the ball in the end. And I think part of that is because they, 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 they don't know exactly how to tie all these threads together or they don't spend the right time to tie the threads together. And it clearly Mira is spending the time to make sure the series you know, is of high quality. Yeah, especially on a scale uh, like that of Berserk these days, you know, I mean, it really got onto an epic, you know, even almost planet-wide scale. So, you know, it's even horror that way. But I think that ambition uh, is also what was needed. I mean, Berserk is a series that has been going on for a long time. And the reason it's kept being good is that because it's become more and more ambitious over the years, you know, the scale that's kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, you know, to, in order to keep on the quality level over the years, not to repeat yourself, to get into new things, but to keep them as good as the old things, you got to spend time on that. And, you know, I think that makes sense. The other common misconception related to Miura has to do with Idolmaster. Idolmaster is basically a series of cute dancing games uh, that Miura had made a comment about once. I'll, I'll let you explain the specifics because... Many years ago, when this first came up, I think it was in 2010, and Zeal had laid out this really detailed post that I still see people point to to this day whenever the Idolmaster stuff comes up. People just point back to Azil's post, so I don't want to speak for him. You can lay it all out, Azil. Yeah, so the Idolmaster series is a, I think it's a mix of training game, training simulation, and yeah, a kind of a rhythm game. Some things that could only, you know, ever get popular in Japan, I guess. So anyway, what's interesting is that the, you know, uh, Outroar didn't start when Mira made the comments. Uh, it started several months later, I think about six to eight months after afterwards. So what happened is that in December uh, 2008, Mira commented in Young Animals that he bought an Xbox 360 along with the game Idol Master. He did it because uh, he was bored and lonely at the time, and uh, he'd watched a video series on Nico Nico Daoga, which is a, a kind of Japanese YouTube. And uh, uh, that uh, video series had been inspired by the game. So, yeah, that's it. That's literally all there is to this whole Idol Master thing is that one time he made one comment about it nine years ago. That's it. And yeah, I mean, there was a hiatus not long after he made that comment, but by the time the publication rhythm had already been slowing down for five years. So it was nothing new. There had been hiatuses before, there were hiatuses after, nothing changed. The rhythm of publication basically stayed the exact same afterwards. It was the same than what it's been, you know, in 2008. So the game was not a factor uh, in it at all. Besides, these comments in Young Animal, they aren't meant to say anything official about the series. You know, they're just comments about the author's life and opinions. Uh, we have a thread, actually, that you mentioned where uh, we translated a bunch of them on Skullnet.net. Uh, has been translating them, so I invite uh, all listeners to, to check them out and see for themselves. I mean, for example... Uh, the ninth comment Mira ever wrote in Young Animal in 1993 was about playing Mario Kart on the Super NES. And over the years, he's posted about, you know, how much he could bench press, about loving Suzumu Hirazawa's uh, work, about Senseiya, Devilman, Star Wars, uh, Sakura Taisen, Evangelion, about stopping his diet to eat chocolate, about going to a tea shop, uh, about, you know, what PC he was going to buy. In 1996, he was bothered because a friend had uh, deleted his Vandal Hearts save file. So Vandal Hearts is a, a PS1 game. Uh, in 2001, he said he had bought a PS2 and was playing uh, Armored Core 2, a mecha game. So yeah, it goes on and on and on. I mean, these comments 
they don't mean anything. They're just a tiny window into his life. So I can't tell you, I, I, yeah, I just can't tell you why some people seem to love this joke so much, but it certainly feels, you know, pathetic to anyone who follows Bazaar closely. It's just tired and plain untrue. I mean, I know, I know why they do it. Uh, I just think it basically discredits Miura and it gets around the truth. And often the, the problem with it is like people say, oh, it's just a joke. But I've so many times, probably it's a one-to-one. When someone mentions it in a thread, you will have someone walk into the thread that's not aware of the history of the quote-unquote joke, and they'll take it away as fact. I've seen that so many fucking times because it's never explained what the, the history behind this nonsense is. And so the joke becomes a fact. Uh, this misconception has become a rallying point for people that are basically impatient and frustrated about the release schedule. So regardless of the reality of it, it's just a low-hanging fruit that this particular group likes to point and laugh at as, I assume, a way of catharsis for dealing with their pain and waiting for the episodic releases. There's just no other singular reason they can come up with for the hiatuses. So it's just funny to say that the creator of Berserk, a dark manga filled with blood and gore, plays a game about... Little Japanese girls, I guess. The last part of the Miura misconceptions section is uh, Guts is based on Guts von Berlichingen. I actually can't pronounce that. I am not German. <laughs> but um, there was a historical figure in Germany in the 14th century, a noble named Gottfried von Berlichingen. He was an imperial knight, a mercenary, and a poet. Uh, one of his nicknames was Guts of the Iron Hand because he had lost his arm to uh, cannon fire during a battle. So he made this prosthetic arm so that he could still hold a shield in battle. When some people learn about that, they figure out it has to be the inspiration for Guts and Berserk because there is that similarity there. A warrior, a mercenary leader, lost his arm, replaced it with a metal arm, and can still fight. It, does, it sounds similar. It must be the same one. So uh, when they're told that Miura has stated it was merely coincidental, some just absolutely can't accept that. They think he must have lied or he simply had forgotten about it or something else. But that doesn't actually make any sense because uh, Miura is the first one to ever mention this historical night during one of his 97 interviews. And he specifically said how surprised he was by the coincidence. Uh, a fan had written, written to him about it. And here's what he actually said. Uh, when I found out about it, I thought it was a strange coincidence. I don't know if he shot arrows from it. Uh, it was especially uncanny because I had already started Berserk. I wasn't really thinking of anybody at the time that I created Berserk. And it, it is. It's quite a coincidence. Uh, but our friend Gottfried wasn't the only one with a prosthetic arm in the Middle Ages, nor was he the first ever. Uh, more importantly, Mira has never made up a secret. Uh, Mira, more importantly... Mira has never made a secret of his influences. He talks about them in almost every interview. He's been upfront with the exact notions he had for Gus and Griffith when he was creating them, including Rucker Howard's uh, characters and various fantasy and sci-fi movies for Gus's appearance, for example. Uh, meanwhile, the only known portrait of Mr. <laughs> Herr von Berlichingen is that of a portly bearded man who bears no physical similarity to our hero. So if this main character were truly inspired by Gus, by Gotts, then Mira would have absolutely no reason not to say so up front. No one would have minded. And again, Mira has always been very upfront about these influences. He's purposely done homages to Berserk to artists like Escher and Bosch, for example. He's referenced Star Wars with the Millennium Falcon arc, all sorts of things, but never a mention of, yes, that was the guy for guts. Yeah, I know for a bit of trivia, uh, if you want to know where Mira got the idea for, uh, you know, that 
prosthetic arm with a cannon in it? Well, the answer actually lies in uh, science fiction influences more than, you know, historical, you know, history stuff and whatever. Uh, Mira was uh, writing sci-fi stories before Berserk, but publishers weren't interested in that genre at the time. It's something he said in interviews. And if you look at his previously published work, uh, the last one was Noah, which is a story starring a cyborg with a cannon hidden in his cybernetic arm. And a few years later, Berserk was published starring Guts with a cannon inside his arm. So if you really want to pinpoint the inspiration for that, my advice would rather be to look uh, no further than Cobra, which was a super popular manga by uh, Buichi Tarazawa that was adapted at a TV series in the 1980s. And that's something which I think uh, Mira would have no trouble uh, saying that, yeah, it inspired uh, Noah's, you know, cannon arm uh, that could shoot, you know, I don't know, lasers or whatever phases. And, you know, by default, you know, by default, it kind of also, how to say, slided and morphed into Guts' cannon arm because it's just fucking cool. And that's why Guts has uh, this artificial arm, you know. He actually mentions specifically Cobra in the 2016 guidebook interview. He says, since I liked Dororo and Cobra, I came up with the idea of attaching something to one of his hands. Yeah. So, I mean, it's right yeah, there. Yeah, I did. <laughs> in the and actually, a uh, good thing you mentioned Dororo because uh, Mura said that it was his uh, favorite uh, manga by uh, uh, Osamu Tezuka. You know, it's a manga about uh, an, a knight who has had uh, his body parts replaced. So his legs and arms are all artificial. And uh, as he kills demons, uh, he can regain each true body part that he's owed. So it's just, uh, it's an unfinished story. It's just four volumes. But yeah, when you actually read uh, Dororo, uh, the influence to Berserk is very, very strong. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of plain to see, honestly. So yeah, I mean... It's sure it's a coincidence with uh, the German knight and people would say, oh, well, he was a knight. He had a, you know, a fake arm, but many, many such coincidences in the world is nothing special. And, you know, in this case, nothing worth dwelling on. Question 19. Why are astral wounds such a big deal anyway? <laughs> so, yeah. So actually, if you, if you look at, you know, the scene where he gets his wounds, which is uh, what Slan does. So she rips his armor apart in volume 26. Yeah, he, he has two wounds. He has one on the chest, one on the back. As to why is there a big deal? Well, you know, as Shuriki explains, uh, these are not just simple wounds on his corporeal body. They're also wounds on his astral body. That means that even when the wounds are healed in the real world, they will reopen. Because, you know, on the, his astral bodies are still there. And, um, yeah, that's why they're pretty important. So, uh, as you can see uh, in that volume, when they get to Frost Mansion, because in pretty bad shape. So bad that he can almost stand and he can't fight and everything. And when he gets to wear the Berserk armor, when they put it on him, uh, there's a, an interesting detail that uh, a few people don't always notice, is that he feels something rushing out from him. And in that scene, we, we get to see uh, a visual where he s feels his wounds, these astral wounds, and we see the chest one morph into the eye of the Beast of Darkness. And that, you know, uh, visual effect is shown at the same time that the art of the armor, you know, uh, how to say, engulfs his consciousness and, you know, uh, you know, like takes over and, he's Yamo transforms and he, he goes crazy. So 
these wounds are actually shown as being uh, an integral part of that process of, you know, the armor, you know, taking control and everything. And then Shoke has to go, uh, you know, uh, plunge into that giant flame, the art of the armor, and rescue gas consciousness, who is so tiny at the bottom, protected by Forest Talisman. And, and narratively, I don't think it will be right for them to heal. This is another thing that gets asked a lot is we're currently in the presence of the Sovereign of the Flower Storm, who's obviously a very incredible healer. That's the way that Skullnet characterizes her in Volume 28, that she's capable of healing Casca's mind. So then why not an arm? Hey, maybe why not an eye? Uh, I think erasing things like that would be a little bit like undoing Gut's past struggles. You know, he has all these scars on his body, even the white patch of hair. These are all wounds or uh, injuries to him that have kind of signify the struggle that he's made throughout his life. And, you know, it's a result of him tackling enemies that are much more powerful than him. You know, a core theme of the series to have those scars and injuries just washed away with the wave of a hand. it, It wouldn't be right. I don't think thematically for the rest of the series to have this, you know, once wounded strong warrior be a pristine warrior. It wouldn't even look right. If you think about it, like guts to getting his arm back. I'm just not sure how I feel about that. And the same for the wounds that uh, Salon gave him as well. I agree with you about the arm and the eye and, you know, like the scar on his nose and everything. These are character-defining features. So I think, uh, yeah, I mean, his arm is not going to regrow. It's it's just, you know, stupid. Uh, like, like we just discussed about the influence for actually creating the cannon arm. That was part of the character design. You know, it's never going to change. It's like the Dragon Slayer. He's never going to get another weapon. Now, as to whether the Astro Wounds will be healed, I don't know. I, I could see it uh, happening, but it would have to, to matter. So I think, for example, if they were healed and it uh, was explained that, uh, you know, the ease with which the armor has taken over so far has been in part due to these wounds, uh, that they kind of facilitated uh, that process. And that with them healed, he might be able to better uh, refrain from losing himself completely uh, to the armor. I think that that could make sense. That could be explained that way. But of course, that remains to be seen whether it would be the case. Question 20. I don't know a hell of a lot about elves, but my understanding is that they only encompass the winged ones like Puck and Evalira. So when elves are discussed in Berserk, the phrase used is actually yosei. So it's a Japanese phrase, which means all kinds of magical creatures like sprites, that kind of thing. And the katakana used for it is specifically elf. That's why we call them elves, because there's katakana that say elufu. So yeah, it's these are called elves. But in uh, later volumes, it's been specified that there are uh, several types of elves as part of... It's a kind of... Uh, wider denomination for these creatures and there are several species within them. So the main species we've been uh, introduced to so far is Piskis. Uh, that's Puck and Ivarella. These are, you know, the flying ones with the little wings. They are called Piskis. And now it's not Pixies and I'm, you know, not pronouncing it properly. It's Piskis. It's actually a variation of that pronunciation uh, from, uh, I believe, Gaelic uh, folklore. So Mira likes to go fetch these really, really old and specific uh, folkloric, uh, you know, influences and stuff like that. He's really fond of that, and um, that's why he's named them that way. So there's another type uh, we've heard about, which are dwarves. So yes, in Berserk, technically dwarves are elves. 
which is actually who it is in uh, Nordic mythology when you think about it. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. He's actually uh, more faithful to European folklore than Tolkien, for example. Take that, Tolkien. So, um, in volume 14, uh, we, we are sh- explained that um, some Yose, you know, were uh, once lived in Godo's mine. They were kind of minor spirits. And we're shown that they didn't look like Puck. So at the time, we're like, oh, well, are these really elves? Are they really like, you know, Puck and whatever? And in volume 26, when Shuruke refers to the dwarves, the ones that uh, fashion the Bezak Samor, uh, dwarf is written in Frigana. And the uh, kanji is basically a, a variation of Yose, which is, you know, to say minor say, also minor elves, minor spirits, whatever. So, yeah, these are parts of, you know, the greater elf family. And of course, now that we've, you know, arrived in Elf Elm, we've seen there are actually tons of different ones. Uh, that's one of the things I think Mira already spent a while working on and it, to, to great success is that we've seen there are really tons of different types of elves, many, many variations, and even the the sovereign of the flower storms, the queen of all elves, is herself pretty unique in design. So, yeah, there's all these types of elves. Among those different types, we actually see creatures that probably are the dwarves that were referenced there, but you know, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but it seems pretty likely at this point. Yep. Question 21. The Black Swordsman arc spoils the Golden Age. Why would you ever read this series out of order? So, like, <laughs> I, I can kind of understand why someone might say that if they were completely missing the dramatic tension that the Black Swordsman introduces on the Golden Age. I feel like it's a completely different, more tame way to experience the story because there's a different kind of tension if you go in blind versus if you know what is roughly going to happen with the sacrifice and behirits, you know, all those concepts that are introduced in the Black Swordsman arc are still there in the back of your mind as you see Griffith forming bonds with his comrades, Guts and Griffith becoming closer. If you're just going into that unprepared, uninitiated to what their relationship becomes, it's almost like the Eclipse would come out of left field, basically. Like, it wouldn't make a lot of sense how those things culminated if you didn't, if you weren't prepared for them in the proper way, which is how Mira wrote the story. So I've never really understood why people recommend going a chronological route given all the buildup and suspense that Mira has created with the Golden Age being a predecessor to, or sorry, with the Black Swordsman arc being uh, preceding the Golden Age. Yeah, I mean, it feels superfluous to say so, but uh, Mira wrote the story that way uh, for a reason. I mean, the Golden Age arc is a flashback. It's not like the beginning, the origin story that was somehow misplaced or anything like that. It is meant to be read as a flashback, even though it's a, it's a long one. So... You know, there's a lot of situations and elements and parts of the story and little details that you can't properly appreciate or understand unless you've read The Black Swordsman first. A lot of concepts are introduced in The Black Swordsman and you don't you don't read it first, you don't get it. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, some people will feel like, oh, they don't like to not know something right away or to be left in the dark or something. But you're supposed to not know everything. You read the Black Swordsman arc, there are things you don't know, there are mysteries. Then the Golden Age arc, uh, you know, answers a lot of those questions. And as you read it, you remind it of what you read previously, and you can put two and two together and try to guess what's going to happen. And the Eclipse is still a big surprise, and you're still, you know, like everything is still very cool. It's even cooler. Rather, if you read the Golden Age arc first, you completely spoil yourself 
uh, for the Black Souls Monarch, which is, I think, uh, pretty stupid because you're depriving yourself of a badass introduction to the series. Uh, you know, at the same time, after you, you finish the Golden Age arc and you get uh, to the Conviction arc and you get to see these characters again and get as the Black Swordsman again, what makes it cool is that it's a character, it's a situation, it's things you haven't seen for a long time, and now you understand better. That makes it cool. So you get to see the Black Swordsman, then, you know, it's his long backstory, then you get to see him again. I mean, that's, that's one of the... My, I think my favorite... Perhaps my favorite part of the series, my favorite reading experience, was coming back to the Black Swordsman. I mean, wow. That episode, that opening with Jill and everything, yeah, probably is a part of must love reading. So, you know, you read out of order, you, you just deprive yourself of that. Well, that's it for the questions, guys. If you stuck with us the whole time, thanks so much. And I hope you learned something from this. And Look forward to this being posted on the forum soon enough. Whenever we get it all formatted and ready to read, it'll be there. So everyone can find it, search for it. It'll be there forever. And if you got other questions that we haven't, you know, mentioned here, feel free to ask them on net. Yep. Don't expect Void to answer them, though, because he's retiring. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back in a little bit for maybe a reread. <laughs>